Good morning, everyone. If you have a copy of God's Word, please open to Ruth, chapter 1. Ruth, chapter 1. As you maybe notice, we have a new microphone today. Um, whoop, whoop. <laughs> so I hope it's not too distracting for you guys as it falls up and down my face while we get used to it. Um, but I think everything will be okay. Let's turn to Ruth, chapter 1. We'll be reading from verse 6 until the end of the chapter. Ruth chapter 1 and verse 6. Then Naomi arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people and given them food. So Naomi set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you, as you have dealt kindly with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, no, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters, go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. Even if I should have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear you sons, would you therefore wait till they were growing? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And Naomi said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return, Ruth, after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God shall be my God. Where you die, Naomi, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, No more. And the two of them went until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stared because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has marred me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi, when the Lord himself has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and when it came to Bethlehem, it was the beginning of barley harvest. And thus says God's word. Let's offer a short prayer to God again and ask him to help us understand his word. 
Father, we want to thank you for the stories that we have heard already today, stories of your providence and of your faithfulness and of your redemption. And we do ask, O God, that the story of Ruth and Naomi here in Ruth chapter 1, Lord, that you would give us eyes by your Holy Spirit to behold wondrous truths out of your law. Help us to understand the tone of the text and also to understand the truths contained in the text. For the praise and glory of Jesus alone, we pray these things. Amen. Well, if you go online, you'll often come across a list of maybe 25 or 50 classic movies. Old bangers, we would maybe say. My question uh, to begin with is this. What makes a movie a classic? Why are certain movies considered better than other times? And why are, why are other movies considered the best of all time? Why? Well, it's hard to say, <laughs> isn't it? Because the plots are generally masterful, the speeches are normally wonderful, and the graphics are mostly sensational. But I do think that there is one feature that sets the classics apart from the rest. And it's this. Normally, they have one profoundly emotional scene. A real tearjerker. A scene people watch over and over again. Doesn't matter if you're born in the 1990s or if you're born in the 2020s. You will come back and back again to these classics. And I suggest it's because they are profoundly emotional. Think about that moment in The Lion King. Spoiler alert for those who haven't watched it. When Mufasa heroically jumps down to save his son Simba from from the stampede coming along. In the process, Mufasa himself is injured, but he battles through. Mighty Mufasa battles through, and he jumps up the rock cliff. And he begins to climb and climb and climb up this rock face. Until Scar, his brother, sinks his claws deep into his paws. And Mufasa plunges to his death. And then the moment turns to little Simba. Crying and yelling and screaming for help. It's emotional, isn't it? I think about that moment. Mary laughed at me last night when I said this. In the Titanic, when the rescue boat finally arrives, Rose hears it and turns to alert Jack on the frozen piece of wood. She speaks to him, but there's no answer. She tries to get his attention, but again, there's no answer because Rose realizes that Jack's dead. And in that moment, the music begins to sound. As Rose lets go of Jack's body, she promises to never let go of Jack's memory. And the emotional ones of us begin to cry. Why? It's emotional, isn't it? Well, Ruth chapter 1 is a classic chapter in the Bible. The plot is masterful, the speeches are wonderful, and the scene is profoundly emotional. It records the story of a woman called Naomi, 
We looked at her last week, how she and her family moved from the land of Judah into the land of Moab because of a famine back in the land of Judah. She thought that Moab would provide food for her and her family. Instead, it only provided misery because there her whole life was turned upside down. In Moab, her husband died, her two sons died, and her foreign daughters-in-law were barren. So her line, her, 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 her family line, wouldn't continue anymore. In just five verses, the author tells us about ten miserable years in Moab for Naomi. From verse 6 until the end of the chapter, the narrator records Naomi's return back to the land of Judah. That word return occurs 12 times in this passage, meaning that Naomi's return is the central concern of the author. And Naomi's return, when you look at it, maybe you've noticed this when we've read it, splits into three episodes, with each episode proclaiming a singular truth. A truth that runs throughout the whole of chapter 1. And a truth which we'll come to see runs throughout the whole of, of the book of Ruth. So what I want us to do for the rest of our time together is to work through each episode, three episodes, and to notice the three truths proclaimed. So we're going to look through the three episodes and notice three truths proclaimed for those who are taking notes. Number one, episode number one, God's sovereignty declared in the fields of Moab. God's sovereignty declared in the fields of Moab. As was the case in most days, Naomi probably woke up this particular day miserable. We can imagine her slowly going through her day, doing her tasks, in a sense, completing her old to-do list, seeing what it is that she needs to do. But she walks through her day and works through her day without hope and without purpose. Because chapter one tells us that her husband is dead. Life seems a little bit better, though, when she talks to Orpah and Ruth, her daughters-in-law. Don't know, maybe they sit down for a cup of tea. They talk about their days. Her, her, her spirits lift for Naomi until, as naturally, the conversation returns to their deceased husbands. And Naomi is yet again reminded that her family line will not continue. And on this particular day, Naomi... Uh, somehow manages to, to, to muster the strength to go out for a walk in the fields of Moab. People probably looked at her as she walked around. They, they, they felt sorry for her. And she probably saw the eyes watching her and people maybe talking about her. Someone, though, stopped Naomi that day and asked her if she had heard about what was going on in the land of Judah. The only thing in Naomi's mind was her affliction. So no, she hadn't heard anything about the land of Judah. The person, perhaps a friend, then tells Naomi how the God of Israel had visited his people and provided them with food. And in that moment, Naomi's mood likely lifted a little because the God of Israel was her God It was her Lord who had graciously come to the aid of her people. Maybe Naomi thought back to the stories that she had learned and the stories that she had heard growing up as a child. How how, how God had, had come to the aid, visited Sarah, barren Sarah, and given her a son whom they called Isaac. 
Or maybe her mind was cast back to the Exodus, how God visited, came to the aid of his people, how, 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 how God knew their suffering, heard about their affliction, saw their, 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 um, saw their, their misery in Egypt, and then decided to deliver them from the hands of the Egyptians. We don't know. But what's clear in verse 6 is that the news Naomi received in the fields of Moab caused her to immediately set out with her daughters-in-law to return to Judah. And that's where the next episode goes to. But before we consider this journey in episode 2, please notice that God's sovereignty is declared in the fields of Moab. We've looked at this before together as a church, but God's sovereignty is his absolute right to exercise his kingly power in whatever way he seems fit to bring about his eternal purposes. To say that God is sovereign is to say that God rules, that God is in control. So you say, Alex, how do we see this in verse 6? Well, notice, it was the Lord who gave his people food. Remember back to the context in verse 1 where we are told that there was a famine in the land. Now the famine is over. The author wants us to see it's not by chance, but it's by God. The New English translation captures this truth well by rendering verse 6 like this. Naomi had heard that the Lord had shown concern for his people, reversing the famine by providing abundant crops. Do you see that? It was the Lord who reversed the famine because it was the Lord who allowed the famine in the first place. In other words, verse 6 is telling us implicitly and explicitly that God is in control of the famine. And this truth is repeated throughout the rest of chapter 1 and it's, it's repeated throughout the entire book. And whenever you kind of understand that 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 the whole book of Ruth is a book of providence, about God's sovereignty, it begins to make sense. You see, it was God who took uh, Naomi's husband and her two children from her. It was God who brought Naomi and Ruth back to Bethlehem. Notice verse 22, at the beginning of barley harvest. It was God who brought Ruth to the fields of Boaz, their kinsman, redeemer, chapter 2. And it was God who gave Ruth a son at the end of the book, from whom King David came, and ultimately from whom King Jesus would come. The author wants us to learn that things don't happen by chance. Rather, they are allowed and brought about by Almighty God for his eternal purposes, which, according to Romans 8.28, are for his glory and for the good of those who love him. And that's the, that's the golden thread throughout the book of Ruth, of God's providence. I was reading yesterday of a, of a young father in his 20s. Um, his son was born with spina bifida. And uh, he, he, he wrote a letter to the American pastor, John Piper, quite a famous pastor. Maybe most of you have heard of him. Well, the young father in this letter told John Piper how he, he had previously read of Piper's uh, mum's death and how he read what Piper said after that. How Piper took no comfort from the prospect that God could not control the flight of a four by four. 
So I did a little bit of research, and it turns out that John Piper's mum, I think, was in Israel, and that there was a massive crash, and his mum sadly died at that moment. So Piper writes, I took no comfort from the prospect that God could not control the flight of a four by four. The man then told Piper in his own letter, how after reading his words, he realized, and I quote, the only place where hope was found was in the hands of a sovereign God who is in control and ordains the falling of a sparrow and the electing of kings and the flights of four by fours and the spinal development of my precious daughter. It was here that hope was found. And friends, the sovereignty of God does not give us the answers to our questions. It's a mystery. It does assure us, though, that nothing comes to us by chance, but by God's fatherly hand. And oh, what a difference this truth makes. Because like Naomi here, which we will come to see, she didn't blame chance and she didn't blame the events that, that it was purposeless and it was hopeless. Rather, she wrestled with her God, knowing that he has allowed this for his purposes. And ultimately, she came to trust that his purposes were for his glory and for her good. Oh, what a difference this truth makes in the trials of life, whether it's a year or whether it's a decade of misery and the web. God is still sovereign. Let's return back to the story and uh, Ruth's loyalty, uh, uh, episode number two, Ruth's loyalty demonstrated on the way to Judah. Naomi, Orpah and Ruth set off that day on the way to return to the land of Judah. Now, it's not clear in the text, but it's implied that these women were so, so poor that in an instance, they were gone. They were from Moab and they were on the way to Judah. In a sense, they weren't packing up their house. They weren't calling the delivery men in in order to, to ship everything back to Judah. It was like that. It was immediate. They were poor. They had nothing. They only had one another. And at some point in their journey, we're not told when, but Naomi stopped and told her daughters-in-law to, to leave, to return back to their mother's house. And by doing so, she made clear to Orpah and to Ruth that they were free to marry again. In a sense, she was giving them her blessing to go back and to find another husband and to bear their own children. Naomi said in verses 8 and 9, May the Lord show you kindness, as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. And that word translated kindness is a, is a rich theological term known as chesed. It describes God's, God's covenant love, his sticky love, which cannot be broken for his people. So can you see what Naomi is doing here for her daughters-in-law? She, she, is, she is committing them. She is praying for them and handing Orpah and Ruth into the hands of the covenant-keeping God. As many of you know, my wife and I had a long-distance relationship for um, just over four years. And the worst part was always saying goodbye at the airport. I'm not... Some people laugh. I'm not generally emotional at times, but the airport was always, always emotional. 
We would both go silent in the car as we got closer to the airport. Our hearts would then drop and sense that butterfly feeling, but not in a positive way, in a negative way. And then we would cry as we hugged for the last time before one of us left. And it didn't get easier every time. Every time was emotional. And that's what happens next in this story. Naomi kisses her daughters-in-law goodbye. And all three women cry out loud. They lifted their voices and they wept. It's used elsewhere in the Old Testament for for intense mourning over, over the death of someone else. It's a profoundly emotional scene. Again, if this was on the screen behind us and we could see it with the graphics, we would, most of us would be crying. It's profoundly emotional. And after some tears, Orpah and Ruth said, No, we will return with you to your people. But before they could say anything else, Naomi speaks to them again in the passage and tells them that there's no good reason for them to return with her because she is miserable and her situation is absolutely hopeless. It's dire. There's no no, no positive prospects with her. So go home, my daughters-in-law. Return. Naomi presents three arguments in verses 11 to 13 to to persuade, to convince her daughters-in-law to return back to Moab. First, Naomi reminds them that she doesn't have any other sons who they can marry. Their life, therefore, would be poor because without a husband there, um, there, there, there was no positive prospects for them. Before anyone calls me a male chauvinist here, this is, this is at that time. There was no positive prospects for a widow. There was no positive prospects for, for, for a girl who was outside of her family home. So Naomi says, go, go back to Moab, leave me, go. Naomi, in her second argument, then entertains the possibility that, that say, um, I marry again tonight. And I have another husband and, and the Lord blesses me with sons. To which she asks the girls, will you remain single all those years until her sons are older? Let's say about 18, maybe MTV, 16 and pregnant, we'll go for that. Maybe 16 years old, they had to wait. That's still 16 years plus nine months of pregnancy. It's a long, long time. Will they remain single? And even if that happened in this, this possible example, they would be past the childbearing age. So it was hopeless. Naomi says, don't be silly. Go home. Leave me. Finally, Naomi tells in her third argument that it would be exceedingly bitter for them to join her. Because in her view, God himself is against her. Verse 13. And if God is against her, there is nothing, nothing good coming to her or anyone associated with her. So Naomi tells Orpah and tells Ruth, leave now while you can. Get out before it's too late. Again, it's not just a casual conversation here. She's pleading with them. She's begging them, just just leave me, won't you? She doesn't want to be forceful, but she is forceful. Go, return, head back to Moab. 
And again, all three of them break down in tears because it's another profoundly emotional moment. And we're told that Orpah kissed Naomi goodbye. And we shouldn't criticize Orpah, Lou, because the author doesn't do that. After all, Orpah did the most sensible thing. She did the most reasonable thing. She did the thing that many of us would do today. She went back to Moab. She returned home to her people to make a new life, a fresh start for her. Ruth, on the other hand, shockingly stays and clings to Naomi. The same word of cling is used in Genesis 2, 24, where we are told that a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast, cling to his wife. Ruth glued herself to her mother-in-law at that moment. And again, Naomi tries for, for, the, for the third time, about the fifth argument, tries to convince and persuade, beg Ruth to leave. She says in verse 15, See Ruth, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and her gods. You do it too. Return after your sister-in-law. In other words, she has made the right decision. Go with her. Don't be stupid. Don't be silly. Don't stay with me. Go. Return. But Ruth, she's having none of it. She tells Naomi to stop forcing her to leave. And then comes that famous, wonderful speech in verse 16. Have a read with me. Ruth says to Naomi, For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, there I will be buried. Do you see the point the author is telling us in episode two? That on the way, on the road to the land of Judah, Ruth demonstrated her absolute loyalty, undivided allegiance to her mother-in-law. Ruth gives up her nation. She gives up her family home. She gives up her people. She gives up her gods to remain with Naomi. She commits herself to a miserable woman and to a life of, of a hopeless situation as a widow. Ruth even says that death will not be the end of her loyalty to Naomi. In a sense, her vow here is stronger than marriage vows. She says, even when you die, I will stay in your country and I will die and be buried where you have been buried. She's so loyal. She is so devoted here. And to make the point even clearer, Ruth calls a curse upon her life from God if she breaks her devotion to Naomi. Ruth is all in here. In a sense, as that hymn says, she has said, I have decided to follow Naomi. No turning back. No turning back. And Naomi realized that. And she realized that no matter what she said, it's, it's not going to change the situation. Verse 18, Ruth was silent. Sorry, Naomi was silent the rest of the journey. Speechless. Ruth's speech is wonderful. But it is also remarkable. Because she uses the covenant name of God in her speech. She doesn't say, may Chemosh the God of the Moabites, do so to me. Rather, she says, may Yahweh do so to me. Ruth's speech is a clear demonstration of her already existing faith in the one true God. 
she had come to know the Lord. And this is remarkable, friends, because Ruth was a Moabite. The author of this book won't let, this for, let, let us forget the fact. Ruth was a foreigner. And back in, um, uh, back in Deuteronomy 23, we are told that the Moabites were banned from entering the assembly of the Lord. And yet, Ruth here had trusted the only God as her only God. Doesn't this teach us something about salvation? Doesn't it teach us that salvation is available to everyone? Doesn't it also teach us that the God is the God of the nations? And this is great news for you today. If you are a visitor, maybe if you're a regular attender, and you still do not know the Lord, this is great news for you today because this God, Ruth's God, the one true God, can be your God today if you come to him through his son, Jesus. The story of Ruth is recorded in the Old Testament, but we also have the New Testament, which records the story of Ruth's descendant, Jesus. Jesus is the God-man who, who lived a perfect life and died a sacrificial death for his people. God then raised Jesus from the dead three days later, showing that his sacrifice for the sins of his people was acceptable to him. And now the, the sin-defeating, death-conquering Jesus calls us to follow him, to leave behind everything like Ruth, and to follow him alone. In Mark chapter 8, 34, Jesus said, If anyone, if you, would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And if you can hear Jesus calling you today, to quote what we've heard in our story of grace, if you can hear the tugging of the Holy Spirit, you must abandon all other things and follow him alone. You must say, like Ruth said to Naomi, I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. Ruth's God can be your God today if you simply come and if you repent and believe in the Lord Jesus. So God's sovereignty declared in the fields of Moab. Ruth's loyalty demonstrated on the way to Judah. And then episode 3 in verse 19 to the end. Naomi's honesty displayed back in Bethlehem. Naomi and Ruth continued in silence until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived, the silence was interrupted by the noise of the whole town because everyone was excited to see them. Verse 19 tells us that uh, some women of the town of Bethlehem said to one another, Is this Naomi? You see, after 10 years, they couldn't believe that she was finally back. And they wondered if it really was Naomi because the misery of Moab had greatly affected her appearance. Is this Naomi? Naomi heard somehow what they were asking and, and tells them not to call her Naomi, meaning pleasant, but to call her Mara, meaning bitter. She wanted her name to be changed because her identity had been changed. Why? Well, listen to your own words beginning at the end of verse 20. For the Lord 
Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? Can you hear Naomi's honesty? She's been real throughout the whole chapter, but now we see fully the reason for her misery. She believes that God is her enemy and is fighting against her. We got a hint of this back in verse 13 when she told her daughters-in-law that the hand of the Lord was against her. It's only now though when she's back in Bethlehem that we hear her soul laid bare. Her honesty come forth. Immediately we want to go in and criticize her. Naomi, don't mean that, do you? But don't do that. Don't do that. Even with a fellow sufferer in this world, don't criticize them in the moment of their grief. Let them wrestle with their God because they will come through it if they are genuine followers of Jesus. They will come through it. It may be one year, it may be 10 years, it may be 20 years, but they will come out. So let them wrestle through and resist the urge to criticize. But because Naomi has come through, We can ask here, well, was Naomi correct in what she said? Well, yes and no. Yes, because she understands that God is sovereign over her suffering. And now some people, even some of you today, will try to tell Naomi that that it wasn't God who brought it, that her losses were just an unfortunate series of offense. But Naomi knows that's not true. She knows that the Almighty rules and she knows that God is in control. She knows that God, not chance, allowed the famine, her threefold lost, and the barrenness of her daughters-in-law. So yes, she was correct. But she was also incorrect because she brought the truth to a wrong conclusion. She rightly believed that the Lord was sovereign, but wrongly believed that the Lord was her enemy. You see, God had provided Naomi with small tokens of grace to remind her that he was for her and that he was working all things together for her good. The harvest was one token and Ruth was the other. But Naomi's misery caused her to miss these tokens of grace. Did you notice how in verses 19 to 21, the women of the town and Naomi don't mention Ruth? In fact, Naomi dismisses her completely when she says that the Lord brought me back empty. I'm here all alone. I have no one. It's not because Ruth wasn't there. Rather, it's because Naomi's misery had clouded her few to the gift that God had given her in Ruth. And this is typical of us all, isn't it? We're often so concerned with what has happened to us or what we don't have that we fail to realize the good that God has given us. Recently, I've been getting quite anxious over certain situations. And they've come and gone, come and gone. And and because of the worry, I've forgotten how God has helped me through the exact same situations before. But my worry has clouded the truth that God has helped me. And maybe you're a Naomi today. Naomi... 
Maybe you're complaining to God that, that you didn't get the promotion you wanted in your job and in your, in your, in your, in your fight and argument against God, you have failed to realize that God has provided you with daily bread. Or maybe you're asking God to provide you with companionship. And because you're so focused on a spouse, you have missed all the godly friends that God has surrounded you with. Brothers and sisters in Christ, so often we need to just lift our heads a little bit out of the sand to see that God has given us small tokens of grace to remind us that he is for us and he is not against us. Naomi's honesty displayed back in Bethlehem teaches us, as we thought, to wrestle with our God, but ultimately to trust that God knows what he is doing. You see, this is only the beginning of the book of Ruth. And we, as the readers, know that God will soon fill Naomi through Ruth. We often think the book of Ruth is about Ruth, and it, it has her in it, but the main character is actually Naomi. That's why at the end of chapter 4, the women once again come to Naomi and this time they bless the Lord because of what he has done for her through Ruth, the girl she didn't even acknowledge in verse 21. We also know that God will bring the Messiah from Ruth's family line. A reminder that God's timing is not our timing because his plans are not our plans. Should this not encourage us then, fellow saints and sufferers to in the words of the english hymn writer william cowper judge not the lord by feeble sense but trust him for his grace behind a frowning providence he hides a smiling face in other words everything seems dark but we need to know that there is a smiling face behind the clouds as we thought about before with spurgeon Charles Spurgeon, who says, when we cannot trust God's hand, we can trust God's heart. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. So like movie classics, this classic chapter has an emotional scene, wonderful speeches, and a masterful plot. Notice how the plot ends in verse 22. So Naomi returned. And Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem. The house of bread is now full at the beginning of barley harvest. In other words, the famine and departure at the beginning of chapter 1 are replaced with the harvest and the return at the end of chapter 1. There are signs of hope. The land situation has been reversed. So our question is, will Naomi's situation be reversed? Well, we need to come back next week <laughs> and carry on in Ruth chapter 2. Let's pray together. Father, we want to thank you for your frowning providence. Father, thank you that on the good days and in the bad days, when the clouds are hanging over us, that you are still sovereign and that you are still in control. And you're still working all things out according to your purposes, which are ultimately for our good and for your glory. And Lord, we want to pray for Naomi's in our midst today, those who are in misery, 
because of loss, because of frustration, because, oh God, they don't know what you're doing. We ask, oh God, that you may restore them in your timing and help us as brothers and sisters to come alongside them, not to correct their theology, but to wrestle with them and to hold their hands up when they cannot hold their own hands up. We pray, O God, that at your appointed time that you will use whatever situation they're going through to bring them back to a deeper love for you and a fuller loyalty and allegiance to Christ. And for those who are outside of Jesus, we do ask, O Lord, that even through this, that you you may open their eyes to see their need for Jesus. We pray, Lord, even through their misery that they're going through at the moment, or family's misery, or even the complaining of a spouse, Lord, because of what they have happened, that you, like you did through Ruth and Naomi, may use that situation to thrust them upon you and give them faith to believe in your son, Jesus. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, let's stand and respond in song.